Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody, and welcome back to the Bama Beat Podcast, brought to you by Home Field Apparel and Wickles Pickles. We'll tell you more about those companies later on in the show. I am his podcast excellency, Brett Hudson, joined by Clint Lamb, Duke of Linebacking. How are you, Clint? I'm doing fantastic. How are you doing today, brother? Good. I just thought I would use the titles that are most appropriate for for the respect that we are <laughs> we are uh, we have deserved, we are earned, and and given by God Himself. Um, that's all I'm going to say on it. I'm I'm just not I'm not going there anymore. It is. We're, we're 30 seconds in. We're 30 seconds in, and I, and I'm just you know I was hoping that we, anyways. Let's yeah, we'll proceed. No, I, I I refuse to engage. I'm just I'm just not. So a lot has happened since we last podcasted. Alabama won an SEC championship. That happened like 10 days ago or something. You may remember it. Alabama became the number one team in the college or state, I guess, the college football playoff rankings. It got into a semifinal matchup with Notre Dame that we thought was going to be in the Sugar Bowl, but now is in the Rose Bowl that is being played in Dallas because the world during COVID is very strange. Um, Steve Sarkeesian has won the Broyles Award. Uh, Alabama has two of the top four and three of the top five in Heisman voting. Mac Jones and Devontae Smith are now Heisman finalists. I guess we can talk about that later on. And in roughly 48 hours or so from from the time this this publishes, Alabama is going to be playing Notre Dame in a college football playoff semifinal. Oh, and by the way, that number one recruiting class Alabama has, they've added to it. So we have a we have a lot to discuss. What in what I just said is is among your most pressing topics, Clint. What like what are people asking you the most about, or what do you find yourself thinking about most? Um, for me, uh, obviously Notre Dame is going to be the most pressing, just because it's a college football playoff game. You're continuing to try to work towards another national championship, and it's happening in like two days. So. For this week, it, you know, most of the focus has been on Notre Dame. But at the same time, though, before we get into that, because we'll have you know plenty of time to discuss it, I also wanted to talk a little bit about this recruiting class because it's kind of crazy. Because um, back, I want to say it was it was earlier this year. It might have been February or March. It was before the pandemic hit. Uh, we were discussing Alabama's struggling recruiting class. They didn't have a whole lot of commits. They had a couple of guys decommit. Um, around the time we were having this discussion, they were left with the only Deontay Lawson as their only commitment for the 2021 class. And since then, you know, well, d- actually during that discussion, we talked about, uh, you know, potential scholarship limits. Like it might not be a, an overly big class. Well, since then, right now they have 26 uh, total players in this class. 25 of them have already signed and are locked in. Depends on what ends up happening with Kamar Wheaton, but it looks like it's going to be 26. And that just, I mean, at least to me, looks a bit a little bit different than we were anticipating. Uh, for sure. So, so as you mentioned, uh, Alabama ended Wednesday or that signing day, I guess, with 24 publicly recognized signees. Uh, we have since learned 
that offensive lineman Jaden Roberts out of North Shore in Houston, Texas, signed with Alabama on that day, but did not announce it until Christmas Day. Uh, he had decommitted from from Auburn for very obvious head coach-related reasons. Uh, Auburn hadn't announced Brian Harson at that time. And he, uh, he apparently signed with Alabama on December 16th and just waited until Christmas Day to uh, announce his commitment to Alabama. And then a couple of days before Christmas Day, this is this is the most Alabama thing to me because Alabama does not need a running back in this 2021 recruiting class. Like they, they just don't like Keelan Robinson in theory, he comes back from, from opting out of this season, right? Like Brian Robinson jr. Could come back for an additional senior season. That's another thing we'll have to talk about later on in the episode. Uh, Jace McClellan and Roy Dell Williams both came to Bama in their 2020 class as top 10 running backs in the class. And they still have Kyle Edwards, as a reserve running back, another freshman behind them, they don't need a running back in this class. Yet, on December 23rd, they pull a commitment from five-star Kamar Wheaton of Garland, Texas. He's the number 26 prospect in the entire class of 2021. Uh, number two running back, number four prospect in the state of Texas. That is by far the most Alabama thing to me, is that they find... They, they basically fill up their class on signing day, including with, with now we know 25 signees. They fill all of their team needs and then they just go find basically the best available talent and then get him to commit after signing day, too. It's just incredible to me. It, yeah. Uh, and I mean, just it's something that I didn't fully realize until you were kind of talking about everything that's been going on but you're talking whether it be heisman success whether it be you know undefeated team right now number one team in the country about to be participating in the college football playoff whether it be from a recruiting standpoint whether it be from a coaching standpoint coach uh you know nick saban finally got that sec coach of the year award that he had been you know uh had kind of missed out on over the you know the majority of his career at alabama you got the Brawls award going to steve sarkeesian it's like just in every way possible right now, this Alabama football program is thriving and nothing is more of a, you know, kind of encompasses that than a five-star, you know, number two running back in the country committing to Alabama when they didn't even really have a huge need there. Uh, and, and you know, we knew that they were going to be deep just from last year's class, plus you're getting Keelan Robinson back. But, you know, then you start talking about getting that extra eligibility. Now you have guys like Brian Robinson also in the mix. And so there just there was zero need for Wheaton, and yet you know he still wanted to come to Alabama mostly because he's seeing the success that uh, the running backs have, have both had in the past and are currently having, and he wants to kind of be a part of that and help himself get to the league or you know become the best player that he possibly can be. So it's just it, it's wild how you know people for whatever reason keep writing off this Alabama program, and Nick Saban you know reach you know he's 69 years old just turned 69 in October. Nice. <laughs> and uh and and he's still trucking along you know things aren't slowing down so it is extremely uh interesting and, and just the offensive recruits that they were able to pull you know uh, just the, the offensive line at receiver you got the five-star running back you got the number four dual threat quarterback in the country and Jalen Milrow um you know they you know Robbie outs or I don't even know how you say it as outs oots uh, I'll, I'll find out when they give us a pronunciation guide when when he's on campus. 
That's yeah. what I'll find out. But, you know, I, I've actually heard good things about him. Um, you know, I, I talked to Rob Ezell's little brother. I actually played uh, high school football with Rob. Um, he was on the Alabama coaching staff, just accepted, I think, the tight end role for or coaching position for South Alabama. Um, but, you know, one of the big things that, that uh, Rob Ezell's little brother, David, has, has talked about with me is just how much that this tight end is, you know, under uh, – underrated uh, and that he feels like that he actually could end up being some t- kind of immediate contributor. And I haven't watched enough tape. I've watched some highlights. I think you can only take away so much from highlights. Haven't went and dove in enough to be able to tell you if he's like an immediate impact type of player or if he's, you know, is underrated. I couldn't really tell you one way or the other, but there's a reason that Alabama and Nick Saban in particular wanted him. And there's a reason that he's involved in this class. So <sighs> fantastic to see them continuing to work towards maintaining this just top level of play that we've seen. But now, you know, unless do you have anything else regarding the recruiting class? Well, kind of uh, tangential to it. And we'll, we'll get to Notre Dame after that is as you mentioned off the top, there was a, there is a reason to believe that this could have been a smaller class for, for Alabama. There is a, just based on roster breakdown, scholarship, um, scholarship distribution, et cetera, it, it would have made mathematical sense for Alabama to keep its recruiting class in the maybe 20 to 21 range. Um, but they didn't. They have 25 signees right now. They're uh, assuming Kamar Wheaton keeps his commitment through the February signing period. He'll be number 26 which puts Alabama in an interesting roster management standpoint. And Alabama, uh, I mean, I don't want to say they're lucky to have a transfer problem, but because they recruit at such a high level, most of the guys that don't play somewhat quickly in their Alabama careers transfer. So you, you have a natural source of attrition that way. Um, but beyond that, another wrinkle in this is, that seniors can come back for the 2021 season. They wouldn't otherwise be eligible, but the the NCAA is granting an extra year of eligibility for, for players due to the, the COVID-19 pandemic. And if you're adding seniors, which you've never gotten back before, on top of your 26-person signing class, Alabama could find themselves in a in a pretty – challenging roster management standpoint. So I think what they're doing is one of two things. They're either anticipating a lot of help from the NCAA when it comes to scholarship limits. Like the the NCAA will recognize that schools are still signing their normal signing classes while introducing seniors back for a second season. And they will – maybe not completely do away with a scholarship limit for the 2021 season, but expand it a lot to, to the point that Bama can work with the seniors that do come back and the freshmen that are enrolling and then let the natural course of attrition happen from there um, to, to get things right for the 2022 season. So they're either planning on a lot of help from the NCAA or they're just not anticipating that much returning seniors which would also make sense too naturally if 
if you're a senior in Alabama, there's a pretty good likelihood that you're a, a reasonable draft prospect. And, and a lot of guys have done their time. They've gotten their degree and they're ready to try something else in, in their lives. Um, so I think they're counting on one of on one or two uh, of those of those things. It's it's hard to tell which one exactly. Well, kind of speaking to this whole recruiting thing and roster management and everything else, you're you're obviously going to see a lot of movement in the transfer portal as a result of the way that this is playing out. Um, and you know, even the guy like Jarrett Garantano, who had spent his entire career at Tennessee, you know, he had that extra opportunity to come back to Tennessee for another year. That's a guy the coaching staff is kind of just ready to move on. I, I mean, you know, I think Jarrett Garantano is looking for a fresh start, too. It's not just the coaching staff, but I think mutually the two decided to kind of part ways. And so you got a guy who has a, a ton of experience and has only been really at one place and it hasn't been from a lack of playing time or anything, but now he's in the transfer portal looking to go somewhere else just because Tennessee had kind of planned to not have him available for next year. And they wanted to continue on that path. It's kind of tough to look at a Harrison Bailey or whoever else, you know, that you were kind of talking about moving on to and saying, well, what we know when we recruited you, we said it was, you know, Garantano is only going to have one more season, but, you know, we had this these circumstances. Sorry, it's going to be a couple of years before we're going to be able to get you on the field. And that's just one example. But a question that I had very quickly for you, because it's something that I've been pondering uh, in my head, is, you know, you're obviously going to see a lot of these players for like an Alabama or for an Ohio State or a Clemson or whoever, one of these powerhouse programs kind of hop into the transfer portal because they weren't expecting some guys to be able to come back. They're maybe not getting the playing time that they had looked for. That happens every time. But what's interesting to me is the with where where things are heading right now. It almost is making me believe that you'll see it the opposite way a lot more. You'll see a situation like a Jabril Cox going from North Dakota State to LSU um, or, you know, Jack Driscoll. I don't remember where he was at. He was at a much smaller school and then ended up transferring to Auburn. Uh, Yeah, it was UMass. Yeah, great call. Um, But, you know, I think that you might actually because what happened before is like if you're Jack Driscoll um, or or Jabril Cox, we'll use him, for example. If if you're Jabril Cox and you're playing at a North Dakota state and you're standing out and, you know, even though you might not be getting the same attention as you would if you were at a place like LSU, um, if you transfer to a place like LSU before you had to sit out. And so there wasn't much incentive to, to make that move. Now, Jabril Cox was a grad transfer, not just simply a transfer guy, which I understand is a little bit different. But my, my point kind of being, if I'm relaying this correctly, would be that the guys who end up being standouts at smaller programs, if you have the ability to move on uh, to a bigger program and be immediately eligible, then that kind of you don't have to worry about, you know, well, if I transfer, I've been playing, but now I got to sit out. Uh, the other way, it's these players are not playing, which is why they want to go somewhere else. And so they're like, hey, if I have to sit out a year going to a different school, I'm willing to do that because I'm not playing anyways. So I kind of had wondered if we'll get more guys working their way up. Now, you'll still get the guys working their way down. But, I mean, do you think that, you know, you got to if you're a smaller program, uh, you know, let's just for, for in-state purposes, a Troy or a UAB or somewhere and you end up having this problem of you finally get some kind of star player that's supposed to make you really good, but that star player decides, well, I don't have any repercussions from moving up 
to like an SEC program who has a need. You know, if Auburn had a need, had a need at, at running back or something, if you're a running back for Troy, to say, you know what, I, you know, I'll go fill that void there, and I don't have to worry about sitting out, and I can become a starter or a contributor there. Um, do you think that that could make it to where these smaller programs lose a lot of their star power potentially? I do think that's possible. You, you make a good point there because it's kind of like a, a free shot, right? Like if exactly. you're, yeah, like like your example of a running back at Troy. If you've been the best running back at Troy for three years and you've done some big things, but you also know that you're not going to be uh, taken as seriously as a draft prospect as you might be if you were playing at a Power Five school. You, you may have been hesitant to make that move to grad transfer because you have some guarantees at Troy that you definitely don't have at most, if not all, Power 5 schools. So in, in this case, you kind of get the best of both worlds. You get that chance to see if you can do it at a Power 5 level, but you also had the senior year already. You had the senior year to, to do your thing at, at Troy or whatever group of five school that you're you're choosing. So it's kind of a free shot. And I, I think you're right. That there are going to be some group of five players that take advantage of that. Now, I, I don't think that any of them are going to take this into their consideration process, but it's something that I personally would caution them to do. The 2022 draft class, the, the year after 2021, right? It's going to be bigger than most obviously because most of the time seniors have no choice but to put their name in that in that draft pool and see if they get a chance but now they can come back so you're actually getting like one and a half senior classes in the 2022 NFL draft after the 2021 season plus all of your early entrants i say all that to say it's a big big draft pool and if you make that jump from to, to use different examples, if you make that jump from UTSA to Arizona and it doesn't go well and you barely see the field, that's going to hurt you a lot more in a draft class that is extra populated just in terms of draftable prospects or just prospects in, in general. So, again, I don't think anyone is going to take that into their thought process, but I, I would because, yep. again – it's going to be it's going to be harder to get drafted in the 2022 NFL draft than possibly any other draft in the history of a seven round drafts. And what, what and, and that's that kind of and doesn't go well. You're you're losing a year of film and you can kind of disappear in a big draft class. Well, that's kind of the yeah, uh, it, it's, it's interesting. Um, my question would be. It, do you think it's the 2022 draft class that is affected or that first draft class that happens after this round of players? I think that the 2022 maybe would be uh, inflated a little bit, but if, if the juniors this year aren't, you know, are going to be juniors next year as well, then they'll have the ability to come back. They won't be forced like they would have, if they would have worked their way into their senior year and then been done themselves. So I think for any of the four classes or five classes, I guess, that were on campus, for the, then things might be able to remain somewhat steady. But for this class that's coming in, by the time that they get to be seniors and the, that, you know, there's true freshmen or redshirt freshmen that didn't have their eligibility right now, you know, taken, 
um, they'll be able to come back and all that stuff. And then from that point, you know what I'm saying? Do you get what I'm saying? It's yeah, a matter of it, it makes sense. So it, it may not fully, but come it's coming until like the freshmen right now come through and then your, your two classes in there. So it, it probably won't fully go away and, until, but then. it's coming is what you're saying. Yes. What, yeah, it's absolutely. Coming. So there's, there's a, there's a risk that you're, you're taking there. Um, let's get to this college football playoff, shall we? Alabama's playing Notre Dame at Jerry World in Arlington, Texas. Um, and what is still like it's it's weird. Like it, I think it's officially being called the college football playoff semifinal, but the Tournament of Roses organization is still like holding press conferences, and they still have the Rose Bowl logo on those just god awful smocks that they give those players, like those cut off hoodie smock deals they're they're in i love your rant about that on twitter I'm like <laughs> find it find it on twitter like why why do we take our best human beings and put them in these garbage garments does it doesn't make any sense anyway um it, so i think it's technically the college football playoff semifinal, but it's being branded the rose bowl in, in some ways it's the one versus four in the college football playoff it's alabama it's notre dame I've done a couple of radio hits early in the week, and I, I think a, a common question I got in all of them was Notre Dame's path to winning is blank. Um, and and every time I said divine intervention, because I, I was joking, but which, which works on a different level because Notre Dame, touchdown Jesus. Anyway, I, I think the, the path would be Notre Dame mucking this game up, put, putting it in the mud and trying to win it like 27 to 24 or, or something like that, because this might surprise people because when they think about Notre Dame, the first name they think about is Ian book, but Notre Dame runs the ball more than all but two of Alabama's opponents this year. I think it's Kentucky and Ole Miss are the only ones that run the ball more frequently than Notre Dame has this year. So it's, it's a Brian Kelly offense, right they're, they They actually kind of, they they are more reminiscent of Stanford than you would think they they are. They're they are a run based offense and they have some ball control elements to them. As, as Brian Kelly said, they're not going to try to run the Princeton four corners offense, but I think their general goal would be to slow the game down, limit possessions, maybe force a couple of stops of Alabama's offense just based on timing and, and lack of rhythm from long drives and then kind of control the game on the ground. And again, keep it low scoring because that's the thing about this Notre Dame team that they had year. And, and one of the things that I thought worked against them when it came to getting into the college football playoff after the loss in the ACC championship game to Clemson was they don't really dominate lesser opponents. They don't really just beat the crap out of people if you look at their their resume especially on the offensive side in terms of just point totals 27 on duke 12 on louisville 31 on georgia tech uh 31 on north carolina only 45 on syracuse which is kind of strange given how bad they are but they are not the kind of team that thrives in shootouts is my point. And they have to do everything they can to avoid that because again, that's just not their profile. They're, they're best fitted to win this game by being a ball control run based offense. Completely agree. And that's, what's going to be super interesting is, you know, when you look back to that Clemson Notre Dame game, 
Notre Dame didn't have a whole lot of success running the football. And, and in fact, they didn't have any success hardly running the football. Um, you know, I think total like 30 carries for 44 yards. Now, granted, you know, a lot of that was Ian Book being sacked uh, several times, which, you know, he rushed for negative 35. Uh, so that's going to obviously affect your numbers. But Kyron Williams, the, the kind of star running back, he averaged, you know, just over three yards a carry in that game. And, and if, if you're going to be, you know, Notre Dame, for for Ian Book's sake, you need to be able to have a balanced approach offensively because if you try to put he, – he's been kind of magical at times this season and, and looked pretty good, but he's at his best when they're able to play their passing game off of their run game, and you weren't able to see that against uh, a Clemson. And I'll be curious to see if you see that against Alabama. Alabama's been pretty good at, uh, at stopping the run this year, but this Notre Dame offensive line, you know, you know, uh, Robert Hainsey, um, I don't even know how to say his last name It's Liam, you know, Eichenberg or something like that. But then you also have Aaron Banks and Jarrett Patterson just across the board. They've been very good at all five spots along their offensive line and they, but they weren't able to get consistent movement against Clemson's front. And I wonder if they can get consistent movement against Alabama's front. And if they can't, I think Alabama's got a secondary that can exploit some Ian Book mistakes a lot more than Clemson does at this point in time. You know, with a Patrick Sertan or a Malachi Moore, you know, or even a guy like a depth guy like Brian Branch. Alabama has been very opportunistic as far as, you know, interceptions and creating big turnovers and big moments. And so I could totally see this game heading in that direction you know, if Notre Dame is not able to get that run game going, uh, but something, and I think it was, was it, it, it might've been Greg McElroy, but I think that he said yesterday that he felt like that this was the, the best team that Alabama has played this year. Do you agree or do you disagree? Uh, that's tough because the, it, in some ways, they're kind of the anti-Florida, right? Florida has has done what they've done this year on high-flying offense with a defense that is okay but exploitable in ways and uh, can ultimately be their their downfall. And and we've seen the exact opposite with with Notre Dame. They're able to control opposing offenses relatively well but their their own offense can be stymied at times as Clemson showed in that ACC championship game and I mean obviously if uh especially having seen that ACC title game but knowing what we know now if if Clemson was was at full strength for that regular season meeting that that game wouldn't have gone to overtime much less double overtime Clemson would have won that game in in regulation that seems pretty pretty clear based on the the information we have now i mean it it has to be between uh notre dame and florida right i mean i know texas a&m has the has the head-to-head over florida so i mean would you throw texas a&m in that conversation or you think it's between notre dame and florida well right you know i'll go ahead and say right now uh just I think you got to take Georgia out simply because Stetson Bennett. You know, they they by the when Alabama played them, they weren't the team that they could have been had JT Daniels been healthy enough to actually play. Uh, so yeah, it, it wouldn't include them. Texas A&M, especially when Alabama played them, I feel like even though they have a lot of offensive issues, I think that they've gotten better over the course of this season. So Alabama playing them this 
you know, what was it, the second or third game? Second. You know, yeah, I, th- I just I think they're different. Uh, they're a different team now. Um, so I think it was a lot easier on Alabama, even though that's not to say that it wouldn't be the same result. I still think that it probably would have. But I'm just saying that I, I do feel like the, the probably the way that, that I would put it is if it's not the best team, I think we can say that it's the most complete. There are issues with Notre Dame, but they're good offensively. They bring a, a balanced approach, a seasoned quarterback with a good passing game. Maybe not a great passing game, but a good passing game. They have a great running game. They have a good offensive line. Defensively, they've done some really good things. Of course, not against Clemson in either of those matchups. But at the same time, they've they've been a very effective defense this year. So when you when you approach it from that standpoint, you know you look at Florida. Florida had you know a, has a terrible defense and a non-existent run game. Uh, Texas A&M, great defense, great run game. You know problems or issues or limitations at the quarterback position. Uh, Georgia, same thing. At the time that Alabama played them, huge issues. Uh, with the production coming from the quarterback spot. So from a completeness standpoint, I would probably agree uh, at least, but that's my two cents. No, I think you, you put it perfectly that Notre Dame is the most complete team that, that Alabama has, has faced this year. And, and we've talked about the, the offense. Ian book has been above average. I wouldn't say he's been prolific by, by any stretch of the imagination. His, his numbers on a per attempt basis don't really compare to Mac Jones, Kyle Trask, Trevor Lawrence, Zach Wilson, any of those guys. But uh, I, I imagine at least a uh, hundred, if not more like 115 FBS teams in America would have liked to have had Ian book as their quarterback, as opposed to the guy they, they currently had. Um, Kyron Williams, the Notre Dame running back is one of, I think 10 guys in the nation to have a thousand rushing yards on the year. You mentioned the the offensive line, which Brian Kelly is adamant is significantly improved from what it was in 2012. And Notre Dame actually has some disruptive players on their defense. They have two guys that are among the top in the ACC in both tackles for loss and sacks, and they have impossible to to pronounce names. Ade Ogundeji, Ogundeji, excuse me, Ade Ogundeji. And <laughs> I'm Jer- glad you you attempted it because I'm like, I'm just going to say that Jeremiah linebacker guy and Jeremiah Owusu Koromora, um, two two of the, the better um, defenders in, in the ACC in terms of creating negative plays. And then, of course, the 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 cousin of Tua and Talia Tungavaloa, Myron Tungavaloa Amosa. Uh, also on on this Notre Dame defense and isn't an every down type guy necessarily, but but he's also created some some negative plays. So when you piece together solid quarterback play, respectable offensive line, Notre Dame is secretly tight end you. Like they're they're always good at that position. It's 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 weird. Um, good offensive line and then some some playmakers on the defensive side, plus Kyle Hamilton in, in the secondary. He's he's a big piece for them as well. Most complete team is definitely the the way to put it. But I would argue being a complete team against Bama isn't necessarily what you want to be. You want to be an offensive-based team, right? Great point. Great you point. Keep up with this offense. It, it doesn't matter if you're uh, comparable to Bama at every position throughout the depth chart. You have to keep up with their offense on the scoreboard. And that 
to me, I, I, that is a fantastic point. And to especially because I, Notre Dame is really good on both sides of the football, but I think that they're not good enough offensively. They're too, uh, to me, I think Ole Miss's offense is more dynamic. I think that uh, you know Florida's offense, despite the fact that it's pretty much just a passing game, I think it's more dynamic. Uh, so I think Alabama has played. I, I think that they're going to be able to manage this offense way more than they were able to manage Florida's offense in the SEC championship. So if Alabama fans are kind of looking or expecting a, a bounce-back performance – I think this is the kind of offense that's going to make you feel pretty good about, you know, that about them actually bouncing back. But then on top of that, that probably one of the biggest weaknesses, and it's not necessarily a huge weakness. It's not that they've been terrible, but the pass defense for Notre Dame um, has probably been the Achilles heel. And, you know, even though the defense has been very good, the front seven's extremely good, great pass rush, but just the pass defense and giving up yardage through the air, that plays right to Alabama. Now, granted, Alabama's offense with the way it's built, veteran offensive line, balanced in that area, run game, passing game, really whatever Notre Dame's weaknesses were, Alabama could build a game plan around it. But what Alabama has kind of moved towards and what they like to do the most is sling the football around and they should be able to have a ton of success doing that against Notre Dame's defense. So even though I think that this is the most complete team on paper, as far as you look at it and you say, well, they're good defensively, they're good offensively, they're balanced offensively, you know, all this, where Notre Dame does kind of come up short a little bit are areas that you do not want to come up short against Alabama, and I think that that kind of creates an issue. So I still think it could very well end up being a similar result to a Texas A&M or a Georgia, maybe even a little bit worse. There's a reason this this line's at 20, and, you know, I think it was 20 and a half last time I looked, but there's a reason it's a three-touchdown, uh, you know, Alabama's a three-touchdown favorite. Um, so, I, but I do think that you raise an excellent point there, and it's something that I, I don't feel like enough people are talking about that. I, I agree, and it will apply all of these matchup things to that final um, line and some individual accolades for for Alabama on the way on the other side of the break. You're listening to the Bama Beat Podcast. And we're back on the Bama Beat Podcast, brought to you by Wickles Pickles and Home Field Apparel. Home Field Apparel is unique, officially licensed collegiate apparel that just so happens to come on the most comfortable hoodie, sweatshirt, or t-shirt that you are going to own. Um, I got three things from from home field apparel for 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 christmas i got a colorado state hoodie it's uh it's like it's actually from when they were colorado a&m and it's this super sassy ram on the front of it that is fantastic i have a baylor baseball shirt with the like three quarter sleeve with an old school bear logo on it that is awesome and i'm i'm struggling to remember the short sleeve shirt at, at the moment um it's it's in the it's in the dryer right now i could go get it but i don't want to pause the podcast for 10 seconds but it's all on homefieldapparel.com they have 13 pieces of alabama gear for for you to shop from and over 100 other schools to look for uh, homefieldapparel.com do me a favor those of you that are intensely online don't tell them that i sent you just do it of your own accord Tweet at Home Field Apparel and ask them about the sad dog joggers. They have these joggers that are super comfortable, but they only have the home field word mark on them right now. And I'm trying like crazy to get the sad Yukon dog husky 
on those uh on those jockers it's it's admittedly a, a cause crusaded by celebrity hot tub first but sad dog joggers tweet at home field apparel about them I, i'd greatly appreciate it and you can use the promo code bama beat to get 20 percent off your first purchase at home field apparel just make sure you don't spill pickle juice on them from your jar of wickles pickles there it's a family recipe that is 90 years in the making right here in the state of alabama if you happen to be a spend local kind of person pickles relishes okras and much more you can find them in the pickle aisle of your local store or you can go to wicklespickles.com to learn more about all of their products wickles pickles let's get wicked so basically what we're saying is you have an i don't want to go as far as to say underwhelming offense but an offense that you would not categorize as prolific going against alabama as a depending on where you're looking between an 18 and 20 point underdog will notre dame cover it's not wild that we're that's kind of the discussion in a college football playoff game with this alabama team um oh well it, it's weird like semifinals tend to have this this uh this result have an unfortunate history of, of being one-sided there are a lot of reasons for that and, and, and We'll, we'll get back to it in a second, but there are a lot of reasons for that. Part of it is that Bama and Clemson have been so ridiculously dominant in the college football playoff era that in, in a lot of cases, your number one and number two have been significantly better than your number three and your number four. And, and you create some of these final scores like the 2019 semifinal Clemson 30, Notre Dame three um, when the two met. In 2018, Bama 24, Clemson 6. Bama 2017 was a good example, too. Bama beat Washington 24-7, while Clemson beat Ohio State 31-0. I think everyone remembers 38-0 over Michigan State in in 2016. So there is kind of a a weird trend of semifinal games that just don't live up to the billing from a scoring margin perspective perspective and there there are a lot of reasons for that some of it is just individual game weirdness a break here a a break there the the 59 to 20 game between Oregon and Florida State to start the college football playoff comes to mind there um like that weird Jameis fumble that turned into an Oregon score for for instance I think everyone remembers that but it it is kind of strange that we have this run of of playoff semifinals that have been one-sided and and we are in that situation once again with Bama and Notre Dame yeah I mean just I guess to me uh it's it's that now everybody's you know predicting it right I mean granted it's not that people didn't see some of the stuff coming but the lines I would have that I don't recall the lines being this you know a three touchdown dog in the college football playoff I don't really remember that uh extreme now i could be wrong but i want to say no, like, right there um so it's now granted here's the thing this has very 2014 alabama ohio state type of feel to it in the sense that nobody absolutely nobody is giving notre dame a chance to, to win this football game and to me we'll have to see if it actually ends up coming to fruition but if i'm you know, Brian Kelly, I'm kind of taking this approach of, you know what, if we get smoked in this one, nobody's going to be surprised. Yes, they're going to, you know, continue with this narrative that, 
you know, Notre Dame gets blown out in these big games and that's embarrassing or whatever, but there was a lot of pressure on Notre Dame to not get blown out by Clemson. Everybody kept saying, if, if you want to make the college football playoff, the one thing that Notre Dame can't do is they can't get blown out. And I think that that pressure actually and not caused them to get blown out, but I think they kind of crumbled under the pressure. And that's exactly what ended up happening. And surprisingly, or maybe not so surprisingly, they still made the college football playoff. But in this instance, it's like no one is – if they get beat by 30 points, everybody's going to be like, well, that kind of worked out the way that we all thought that it would. And for that reason, I feel like if you're Brian Kelly, you take this approach of we can kind of let loose, have some fun. We don't have a whole lot to lose here outside of just keeping this stigma around that we you know, don't perform well in big games. And, of course, that continues to mount and hurt you, but at the same time, it's more of a, well, nobody's giving us a chance. Let's have some fun. Let's take some shots. Uh, and hopefully if, if we can get some things going, then, you know, we can stay in this football game. But at the same time, it's like, I don't know. I, I don't know how I feel about it. One thing I'll say is anytime that you think that Alabama is going to let something get to their head, the fact that they're, you know, I kept talking about that Arkansas game potentially being a trap game. And to some degree, what's crazy is, is that I've continued to say these things and continue to say that, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if, if they looked a little bit rusty against Kentucky because they were coming off of a bye week and then followed that up with a, a, a postponement of the LSU game. It had been several weeks or a few weeks since they had played. I'm like, I wouldn't be surprised if they come out and, and look rusty. And that ends up causing, you know, Alabama not to cover. And then that's exactly what happens. And then you look at that Arkansas game and, you know, they didn't look, you know, extremely great with the passing game offensively. But it didn't matter. They blew out both opponents and and, and still, you know, somehow, especially the Arkansas game, anytime I look at that final score, I'm still just kind of shocked uh, that it was that lopsided based off of what I actually saw on the field. Uh, and so, you know, I, I think that Alabama covers here, even if, uh, for whatever reason, Notre Dame comes out and they're playing loose and having some fun and maybe some early things happen. To where, you know, Notre Dame, everybody starts thinking, oh, well, Notre Dame actually might make this a game. I think in the end, by the time we look at the final score, it's going to be Alabama, score, you know, outscoring them by, you know, more than three touchdowns. What final score do you have on it? Do you have one? Uh, I would probably say I think that Notre Dame just because of maybe – and who knows? I also think it's kind of important for Notre Dame to come out and, and really try to put an emphasis on establishing the run early because if you can do that, then I think that gives you the best opportunity to operate your game plan as normal and keeping that balance. They were not able to do that against Clemson, and it caused a huge problem for them offensively. But uh, at the same time, like I said, I wouldn't be surprised if off the first snap of the game they're doing some kind of crazy stuff to try to get some early momentum – and so so with with all that being said, I would probably say that Alabama is going to put up somewhere in the, you know, mid 40s to high 40s. And I think Notre Dame is probably somewhere in that, um, you know, low 20s range would be kind of where I would put them 23, 24, something like that. So I don't have an exact score prediction, but I would say that if I had to guess, I think Alabama covers the 20 points. And I think, but they, I don't think it's by a large margin. I think it's by two or three or whatever. And so that would be, do you have a score prediction or have you made one yet? I think I fell somewhere in the 38 to 20 range. Like I, I don't know that, I don't know that Notre Dame is going to ever really abandon the ball control 
type thing. I think they're I think they will have some success in limiting the number of of possessions. And then when you have people like the the guys we mentioned earlier who can create negative plays, just one of those can totally ruin a drive. So you you have a game where you have limited number of possessions and one player can can more or less end a possession, maybe two. That that kind of gets you to where an Alabama offense that otherwise could reasonably score somewhere in the 45 to 48 points might end up somewhere in the 38 range. And then if you're having some success in, in the ball control elements, you you have reason to, to believe that uh, you can produce some points out of that. Plus, Notre Dame has a good punter. Jay Bramblett is actually a Tuscaloosa native. I, I just posted a story about him on TieSports.com. It should be one of the more fresh things on the website when you when you listen to this, unless you get to it um, on Thursday or Friday, maybe. Um, they they have that, so field position could could play in uh, in, in Alabama or in Notre Dame's favor at, at times. So I think I, I fell in that. 38 to 20 range, which, which again, I haven't checked the spread for this game in, in a day or two. Is there anywhere where you can get it as low as 18? Uh, that's actually an interesting question. Where I saw it, actually a lot of the, well, yeah, um, there's a couple of them. Um, sportsbetting.com, according to Vegas Insider, has it at 18 and a half. And I kept saying 20 and a half, but it's actually at 20 right now, according to bet MGM and a lot of these others. So, you know, 18, 18 and a half, I feel like that, oh man, that would be, I still like it at 20, but if you can get it at 18, uh, that that's a, that's a magical number in my opinion. Okay. Good, good to know. So I guess, I guess I'm picking Notre Dame to cover. Uh, I'm not sure that I realized that when I created the the final score that I did, but I'll, I'll stick with it. Why not? What's the. What's the worst that could happen, right? It's not like uh, it's not like I'm putting money on that prediction, and, and surely no one is putting money on on my predictions right now. Gannett in the USA Today Network, they had all of the SEC beat writers pick all of the SEC games of the season against the spread, and I think I fell. I haven't updated mine after the final regular season uh, weekend, but I think I was like right on the number of 500 like i was i was right there so surely no one is fired up to place some money on on my final score prediction put it put it that way so i I guess i'll I'll pick notre dame to cover why not okay fair enough i like that now do we have anything from a record standpoint or are we no we can we can i'll have to i'll have to pull that up And, and while I, I pull that up. We should probably talk about the fact that Alabama absolutely dominated the All-America team. They very well could produce a, a Heisman Trophy winner. Actually, if we keep our current recording schedule, the next time we record will be just a few hours before the the Heisman Trophy ceremony. So I guess we'll have to figure out if we're going to record before or after that to, to include that. But on the Associated Press's uh, All-America team, Mac Jones, Najee Harris, Alex Leatherwood, Landon Dickerson, and Devontae Smith were all first-team All-Americans, plus Patrick Sertan on the defensive side, a first-team All-American. The second team, I'm scrolling through, I don't see... An Alabama player on the second team, Christian Barmore, was a third-team All-American 
alongside Dylan Moses on the Associated Press team. And I, I say all that because I want to go back to our preseason uh, predictions where we wanted where I one of the questions asked was how many first team All Americans I went with four I went with the conservative route I went with Letterwood and Waddle for sure which you know that that bit me that uh, would have happened I believe it would have and then two of the three being Sertan Najee and Dylan Moses so Leatherwood was on there Waddle got hurt Patrick Sertan got there Najee Harris got there so so it is. What it is, Clint, you had seven. You you nailed this. You had Najee, you had Devontae, you had Alex Leatherwood and another offensive line lineman. All of those things happened. You also had Patrick Sertan as a first-team All-American. Now, you had Dylan Moses and not Mac Jones, which, I mean, come on, no one was picking Mac Jones to be a first-team All-American in the preseason. But I, I got to give you props, man. You, uh, you, you hit that more or less on the money. Well, it still was kind of surprising to see, uh, you know, I, I'd kind of forgotten that I'd even said that, but just seeing all those names now, granted the, the, the recognition from, for, for playing for Alabama and the production, you know, it kind of makes sense, but just it, to see one team dominate like that was, um, was, was pretty crazy. And, and speaking of Landon Dickerson, because we haven't even discussed that. Oh yeah. Uh, we do need to talk about that. Yeah. Like, so how, and really, it's like, man, um, I feel like that is a major talking point for this particular game. How much of an impact, if any, do you think that it's going to, which I think we both can agree it's going to have some impact, but how much of an impact do you think it has not having him and having a guy like Chris Owens in there at center? A, a little, but not as much as people on the outside would, would think, because uh, this was something we were discussing pretty heavily in the preseason that Alabama's depth on the offensive line is is probably elite from from a national standpoint. So you can survive something like this. And, and, and Bama's had to deal with this at times. Deontay Brown took on a minor shoulder injury, I think, in the Tennessee game. And then, of course, Evan Neal missed the, the Arkansas game and, and just barely got back in the fold in time for the SEC title game. So they've they've had – brief spells where they've had to find a way without one of their top five starters. And, and Chris Owens has always been a, a valuable piece in, in that, in that puzzle. So this is, this is kind of what makes Alabama so good on its offensive line right now is that they have the depth to survive without starters for short periods of time. Now you would prefer those short periods of time, not be the, the 10 days that make up the college football playoff this year, of course, but I think they can survive this. And Chris Owens is experienced. He started four games last year. He played a little bit after that as, as that tight end in the specialty package, less so than Kendall Randolph, but he still played some. And then as mentioned, he's had to come in and fill in at times for uh, to play center, to move Landon Dickerson out to guard when Deontay Brown got injured and then he played right tackle for, for Evan Neal when when he got hurt. So or or when he missed the the Arkansas game, I, I shouldn't say he he got hurt. Point being is you're not doing what Notre Dame had to do, right? When they lost their center, uh, Jarrett Patterson for the year, you're having to throw in guys that didn't really have a ton of experience behind them. You're not having to do that. Chris Owens is an experienced player and someone who 
yes, has never been the starting center in a college football playoff game, but he, he knows what he's doing also. And I think that that is extremely important uh, from a, just knowing what to do and being able to get the job done. I think that that is, you know, a huge factor in him stepping up in Landon Dickerson's place. And it's not like he's playing an all new position. He's played left tackle, right tackle. He's played some guard. He's played, you know, he's been a blocking tight end, but he's, you know, probably the, I wouldn't say the majority of his experience, but a lot of it has come at the center position. So I think that's helpful uh, as far as what it's going to actually do to, you know, uh, the, or what kind of impact it's going to make on the game. I, you're going to have a, a less physical presence with Chris Owens in there compared to Landon Dickerson. Landon Dickerson has been fantastic when it comes to just you know playing nasty offensive line style football, moving guys in the run game, being that physical presence. And Chris Owens, um, you know, adequate uh, pass protector, knows what he's doing, works extremely hard. I just don't think he has that same kind of anchor strength and 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 that ability to move guys consistently in the run game as much. But with all those other factors, I don't think it's going to make as much of an impact, like you said, as some people have painted it to be or, or have said that it could. And so I think that that's extremely important to distinguish between those two things because it can impact the game, but and it kind of calls Alabama to maybe try to do some different things to play to Chris Owen's strengths. They're not going to be pounding it, you know, up the A gaps or, you know, a, a lot of that stuff, maybe as much as they would have with Landon Dickerson in there, but they can do other things to compensate and, and still get the production that you need because Alabama's offense is so versatile and can attack you in so many different ways. So, I think that you raised an excellent point there. Got that covered. So you got us some records, Brett? Yes, working on it right now. So we'll we'll do the thing. This is going to be shorter than it normally is because, again, Alabama is going to be playing uh, another game. Or <laughs> I did the thing where I assumed. So so Nick Saban's probably going to beat down my front door, <laughs> um, try to choke me out. But um, since we're we're pretty confident that that Alabama is going to be playing an additional game. Uh, after this, we'll, we'll start with Devontae Smith. Um, he already owns Alabama's record for career receiving yards. He is 139 yards away from the SEC record for career receiving yards, currently held by Jordan Matthews. He is, on a single season standpoint, he is 216 yards away from Alabama's single season receiving yards record, currently held by Amari Cooper from 2014. And if he has two big games in the college football playoff, he could break the SEC single season receiving yards record, which was set last year. Jamar Chase of of LSU set the record um, breaking an LSU uh, record. Josh Reed from 2001 previously had the SEC record. Amari Cooper fell just short in 2014 before Jamar Chase broke it last season. So, um, to, to re- recap those numbers, 139 yards away from the SEC record for career receiving yards, 216 yards away from the single season record in Alabama history from the SEC record and from the in, uh, single season receiving yards, which, again, is just wild because he only had a 10 game regular season. Yeah, that's crazy. Nuts. Yeah. Um, Alabama's career receptions record. He is 
12 catches away from tying it, 13 away from breaking it, as you would predict. That record is held by Amari Cooper. If he breaks that record, he'll also put himself six catches away from breaking the top three in SEC history and career receptions. So he's he's getting close there. It would take something absurd to, to get into the Alabama single season receptions record. He would need 26 catches to do to tie the record, 27 to break it. But it, it's very reasonable for him to work himself into the, the top three in SEC history in single season re- receptions. And then touchdowns. Devontae already has the Alabama record for single season receiving touchdowns. He is three touchdowns away from tying and four away from breaking the SEC record for single season receiving touchdowns, also set by Jamar Chase last season. If he were to do that, if he were to have four touchdowns in between now and the end of the season, not only would he break the single season receiving touchdowns record in SEC history, he would also put himself in sixth place in NCAA history in career receiving touchdowns. If he did it, he would pass people like Patrick Edwards and Justin Blackman. He's already passed Braylon Edwards, Greg Jennings, Austin Pettis, James Washington, James Post Proche, Devontae Adams. It's it's awesome. Um, so he's he needs a few touchdowns to get there, but he's he's working his way up that list. In the SEC title game, we're gonna transition to Najee Harris. In the SEC title game, he broke the Alabama record for career rushing touchdowns, or or maybe in the game before that. No, I think it was in the SEC title game. Um, so he now owns that record. He is. Let's see. He is one touchdown away from the top five in SEC history in career rushing touchdowns and two away from the top three in in SEC history. Now, Najee currently has 44 career rushing touchdowns. Tim Tebow holds the record with 57. So that's not going to happen. But he can work himself up into the top five, if not the top three, should he perform the way he has most of the season. He is four touchdowns away from tying Alabama's single season record for, for rushing touchdowns, of course, set by Derrick Henry in his Heisman year in 2015, which that would also be kind of insane if Najee Harris has as many or more rushing touchdowns than Derrick Henry had in his Heisman season, yet Najee is not even a Heisman finalist because there are two guys on his own team that were Heisman finalists. That would be insane. SEC total touchdowns, three touchdowns away from tying Tim Tebow's record for from from breaking it. So a lot in the touching in the touchdowns um, realm there. And, and Najee already broke Alabama's record for career rushing yards. So that's that's already been done. Moving on to Mac Jones, single season passing yards. He is 227 yards away from tying Alabama's record for single-season passing yards set by Tua in 2018. If he does that, which, I mean, he, he, he should, he will crack the top five in SEC history in single-season passing yards. That, that list goes as follows. Joe Burrow in last season, that he's, he's not going to touch that. He, he really could get to second, though. Second is currently Tim Couch 
with 4,275 passing yards in the 1998 season. Mac Jones is only 536 yards behind that. So if he has a somewhat average games for him over the next two games, should Bama beat Notre Dame and, and get to the national title game, he'll he'll put himself in a position to be in second in SEC history in single season passing yards. And then finally, passing touchdowns. Mac Jones is one passing touchdown away from tying for second in school history in single season passing touchdown, two away from getting into second alone. The the record was to his 2018 season where he threw for 43 touchdowns. Mac currently has 32. So again, that's pretty unlikely. Um, but it's there for the taking for uh, for Mac Jones to get to second in, in school history and single season passing touchdowns. Uh, three of the top five Heisman contenders, even though only four are technically going to be considered um, just getting three of the top five is, is incredible. Um, and in fact, has that ever happened before? I know we've seen, you know, we, we had Chase Young and, uh, and what's his name? Uh, Justin Fields last year. We've had, you know, DD Westbrook and Baker Mayfield. We've had Matt Leinart and Reggie Bush, uh, Jason White and Adrian Peterson back in the day for Oklahoma. So we've had plenty of guys who have been actual Heisman finalists going to New York, um, but as far as finishing with three of the top five, because I, I think in years past, I mean, I, I could be wrong here, but they've never really released like five through ten, correct? They they don't do it until it's already done. Um, I, I think I saw a stat somewhere, and I'm trying to see if I can quickly find the year. I think I saw that three in the top five had not been done since like the 19th. 40s um which would just be insane i'm trying to find it yes here it is in 1946 army had three guys in the top five in heisman voting glenn davis won it that year i forget whether he's mr insider or mr outside i can't remember uh doc blanchard was fourth and arnie tucker was was in fifth so this if if i'm remembering the stat i saw correctly this is the first time since 1946 that one team has had three players in the top five of Heisman Trophy voting. And really, I mean, all deserving. Uh, I mean, I understand that Najee Harris was the one <clears throat> that finished outside of the the guys who were are technically Heisman finalists. But when you look at his season in any other year, he is up there in the conversation and he's a legitimate you know contender for it. And it just, it just so happens that, you know, his season where he was able to put up all those statistics. Like you said, there were a couple of other Alabama guys who, you know, uh, had some pretty special seasons too and kind of pushed him down the list a little bit. But all right, that's pretty uh, incredible stuff and, and great episode. Covered a lot, covered recruiting, covered Notre Dame, uh, you know, impact of Landon Dickerson's injury, covered some records. Always love getting that in. Brett, do you got anything else, brother? I'm I'm good to go, man. I am I am so I'm so done with like the the content of everything for for the week. I, I'm at the point where my focus is no longer on the game. It is solely on the ungodly amount of brisket I'm going to eat in Texas. <laughs> I'm pretty jealous about that. I hope you have a great time. When when are you flying out? 
Uh, first thing Thursday morning. Um, I think I'm on like a 6:30 a.m. flight out of Birmingham on on Thursday morning. So that'll be a, a pretty early wake up. But hey, I'll be in Dallas in time for lunch. So yeah, great point. That's an extra meal that you'll get to have there. So. All right, man, we'll travel safe, and I look forward to talking to you about whatever happens. Hopefully it's good news next week. This has been the Bama Beat Podcast brought to you by Wickles Pickles and Home Field Apparel. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.